I said already in prayer that today is a baptism Sunday. We do these a few times a year where we take a good part of the service and we get to hear from folks who um, some recently have been saved, some perhaps thought that they were a Christian uh, before and then realized they weren't and, and hence they're getting baptized for the first time even though they've gotten wet before. So you'll hear about those stories and we'll get to celebrate their new life in Christ, get to see a picture of the gospel um, shown to us. God's given us these symbols. He's given the church two symbols, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we get to do two of them uh, this week, both of them as a church. And we'll look forward to the Lord's Supper on Wednesday and look forward to baptism toward the end of our service in, in just a bit. But as symbols, they communicate, right? So they're four. It's not just a rite or an exercise or just a commandment. It's a rite and a symbol. And it symbolizes something. It communicates to us. And God has also communicated to us in his word. So turn to Psalm 67. As we do every Sunday, we'll open God's word together. Remember, the Psalms are a book of prayers and songs. And they're rich with truth and rich with experience as well. So oftentimes as we look into the Psalms, we, we see ourselves sometimes. We see our own experience. We see a page which reflects maybe our prayer journal or diary, if you do that sort of thing. But sometimes we look into the Psalms and we see the example there and it contrasts with our lives. It, it convicts. It shows us something different, a priority that's different. It says too much or it shows... Uh, aims and purposes that are beyond what is reflected in our everyday life. And that might be the case with Psalm 67. It might both show us something that we see in ourselves from time to time, and yet something we want to see more. It might show us something of a contrast compared to what we want usually. It's a psalm about God's blessing. I don't think I need to plead with you to pray that God will bless you. Seems like that's probably the most common prayer request, at least here in, in America, among Christians. We pray the Lord would bless this food. We pray the Lord would bless our day. We pray he would bless us while we sleep. We pray he'd bless that interview that you have to do. We pray that God would bless the test, even though you didn't study. It's on our currency. God bless America. Some people even have signs in the kitchen that says, God bless this mess, I've seen. All this blessing, what does it mean? What are we really after? What are we wanting God to do when we say, bless this? Does it just feel good? Does it just go well? Just doesn't cause us any trouble maybe? What does it mean? What are we praying for? What are we asking? What do we want of God when we say bless this or that? We should be able to describe that, right? If we're going to just say the phrase, Lord, bless this, we should have something more in mind than just the phrase. It's got to look like something. We have to imagine what we're actually wanting him to do. And hence, probably saying more than just bless this or that. But Psalm 67 shows us an example of praying for God's blessing. It can't be wrong to pray for God's blessing. Psalm 67 
shows us that God wants to bless us. But maybe not like you think. Maybe not like we sometimes pray. God has better blessings for us than we often know to pray. His blessings sometimes aren't the ones you're praying for. But the ones he has are better. So here's my whole point in just a sentence or two. My whole point in studying Psalm 67 and trying to communicate that to you this morning is this. We in America, Christians in America, we tend to pray that God will bless us with temporary, personal comforts. Those three things. Temporary, personal comforts. But Psalm 67 shows us blessings which are not temporary but eternal. Not personal so much as global. And not mere comforts, but something infinitely more glorious than our temporary comforts. And ironically, Psalm 67 suggests that it will cost us some comforts to get to see these better blessings and to get to see these better blessings experienced in our own lives and in others. So Psalm 67 gives us better blessings. That's how it begins. That's the first thing in your notes, a prayer for blessing. That's verse one. Verse one says, may God be gracious to us and bless us. There it is. And make his face to shine upon us. What does it mean when it says bless us? Because we perhaps overuse that word bless and blessing. Because we often say it without thinking about the meaning of it. We might wonder what it is here in God's word when it says God bless us. Well, you might have noticed it has three things said in verse 1 that are prayers. It's God be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine upon us. Now these are three similar things. It's in Hebrew poetry a way of emphasizing something to sort of stack layers, saying the same thing different ways, slightly different ways, multiple times. And here we have one of those examples. So if we want to know what blessing is here in Psalm 67, we just look before and after it. The words used as alternatives will help us be gracious to us and bless us. That means that God's blessings are always according to his grace. His blessings are never earned. His blessings, even his grace itself, isn't predicated on our obedience. It's not even predicated on our faith. It's not, if you believe it, it will be so. And it's also not predicated on our prayers. Even though Psalm 67 here is praying, essentially, praying for God's blessing, it's not the prayer that warrants the blessing. The blessing is part of God's graciousness. It's grace that he blesses us. It's grace that he gives us mercy. It's grace that he gives us anything. We also see, looking ahead of the phrase, bless us, that he would make his face to shine upon us. Meaning that blessing us is blessing with the gift of his presence. 
He's giving us the gift of himself. That's what we're praying when we say, God bless us. At least it's what the psalmist here in Psalm 67 is praying, that God would cause his face to shine upon us. He's saying, God, give me your grace and give me your face. Give me your salvation and give me your countenance, your your person. The face shining language is used many times in the Psalms. Psalm 4, Psalm 31, Psalm 16, Psalm, Psalm 80. It was a common way of putting a king's favor in ancient Near East times. So when a king's face was shining upon the people, he was in a good mood, he was favorable, he was giving you what you need. You'd had acceptance. If you went in to see the king and you prayed beforehand that his face would be shining upon you, it would mean that he was okay with you. He had favor. So when we talk about God and his face shining upon us, a God who's infinitely more glorious and good than any earthly king, it means, yes, finding acceptance with him. It means him smiling upon us and giving us his favor. It means, yes, him giving us what we need and doing us good. But it also means, unlike an earthly king, him revealing himself. He's shining his face upon us. He's letting us in on who he is. He's showing us his glory. He's being near to us. He's fellowshipping, communing with us. Remember Moses, it said, talk with God face to face. It doesn't say literally face to face, it says as it were face to face, or as face to face, meaning it was really intimate. Uh, Moses prayed at one time, Lord, can, can I see your glory? God said, no, you can't see my face. So we know Moses didn't really see God's face, but he had something of the intimacy of God's personhood as they communicated with each other. That's blessing. So this reminds us of that Arianic blessing, number six, where God told Aaron to pray this blessing on the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The greatest of God's blessings is God himself. That's what Aaron was said to pray for the people. Psalm 67 says more than what Aaron prayed for the people, though. More than the Arianic blessing. We'll see that. It stands on number six and stands far beyond it. It reminds us of what we see if we fast forward in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. The same God who said, light Shine out of darkness in creation, the beginning of the story. That same God is the one who's shown in our hearts when we come to faith, when we come to believe, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In other words, we see something of the face of God in Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God in the flesh. He's the Word incarnate. He's God in the flesh. Now back to Psalm 67. Look at verse 1 and notice that three times it says us. Be gracious to us. Bless us. Your face shining upon us. Which tells us that this isn't just a prayer for self. It's not just a prayer for family. This is a prayer for the community of 
the saints. Remember, these were songs, these psalms, and they were to be sung in corporate worship with the people when they assembled together, like we've done today. We've sung songs. God's people have always done this. And so the corollary for us today in the church, well, if we're going to obey Psalm 67, what God is implying for us there, we will pray God's blessings on not just me and not just my family, not just my tribe, my crew. We'll pray God's blessings on each other. We'll pray God's blessings on us as a body. Have you been doing that? Have you been praying for the church? I pray that you have. I, I, I think that I have it a little bit easier when my job is pastoring. I don't pray for the church nearly as much as I should. I don't pray for individuals in the church nearly as much as I should. But there are all kinds of reminders like staff meeting and elders meeting and you know prayer lists that come uh, across my desk and, and those sorts of things that sort of incite me to pray for our church body. Sermons incite me to pray for our church body. I pray you would be doing that as well, even if you don't have those um, reminders around you throughout the week to do it. You need to maybe put them in place. Make a prayer list. Pray for the church. Pray as a church and pray for the church and pray for God's grace and pray for God's presence. Pray that God would be gracious to us He'd bless us, and he'd cause his face to shine upon us. But when we pray like that, know that there's a responsibility involved. Remember Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. So why would we pray for blessings? Well, Psalm 67, after verse 1, spells out at least six interrelated reasons. Now we can read the whole psalm. Read verse 1. Notice verse 2 begins with a that, a why. So we're answering the the question why. Why pray God bless us? Let's read. We'll start in verse 1 again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That, here's why, your way may be known in the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So six interrelated reasons why we pray God's blessings, why we want God's blessings. The first, God has a plan for the whole earth. The whole earth. He has a plan, and it doesn't just involve you. So this shapes the way we pray for blessings. Did you notice all the different ways that earth or the globe, people in it were described here? All the different ways. Earth, in verse 2. Nations. The word peoples is used multiple times. In fact, a total of ten times earth, nation, or peoples is used to describe the planet and God's people in it. The the people in it. 
and those who would be worshipers if God's grace extends to them. There's an anticipation here of a global blessing, of this plan of God getting global, hitting nations and peoples, his praise spreading, his glory being acknowledged more and more. And this is all through the Psalms. But not there only. It actually has its roots in Genesis 12 and promises that God gave Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 3, there God told Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He said, I'll make you a great nation, uh, but I'll also make you the father of many nations. I'll not only bless your nation, but, but through you will become many nations and many kings, and, and they'll be blessed. So Psalm 67 is tapping into that and amplifying that. No surprise then that this psalm sits towards the end of a section that emphasizes this very thing. Psalm 56 to Psalm 68 emphasizes this plan where God's praise is going to spread to the nations. It, it, it keeps saying over and over. Well, let's just look. Look at Psalm 65, since that's probably open in your Bible already. In verse 5, By awesome deeds you answer us with your righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. The one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Why? Why does God do these things all over the world? So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Now, in a sense, that says too much, right? Because there are some that aren't in awe of God's signs, but it's there. He is there and he is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer famously wrote. Or even more famously, Psalm 19. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The stars are shouting forth information. There is no place on this planet where their voice isn't heard. Oh, it's a silent voice, but it's there and it's clear. Even though we're born trying to not own up to that, trying to suppress it trying to pretend it's not clear that he's there. So Psalm 65 is saying, everyone knows one day this thing's going to get clearer, what he is doing and who he is. So Psalm 66, verse 1, here's the call. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. In verse 8, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praises be heard, or literally, send his praise abro- abroad. Shout it. Spread it. Get it out there. Now, now, don't think of these passages like something of an Old Testament great commission. You know, at the end of every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus gave the disciples a commission to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel and... Find those who God is working in, that they would be saved, that they would be reconciled to their maker. That happens, yes, 
the time of Jesus, and and as he, uh, after his resurrection, that's been our mission ever since. It wasn't quite the mission of the Old Testament, though. In the Old Testament, there are promises of what's to come, that there's going to be global glory, global praise, something of global salvation. Not that everyone would be saved, but every corner of the earth would find salvation. There are promises like this, like Isaiah 49, that God said, I will, future tense, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Old Testament also had foretastes of people of the nations, not Israel, coming to see, coming to know, coming to believe and trust in Yahweh God and his mercy, like Rahab. So Psalm 87 verse 4 says, Among those who know me, God speaking, I mention Rahab and Babylon, parts of Babylon anyway. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. What's that mean? Well, there are some people in the Old Testament, just kind of blips on the screen, who weren't born among the people, but they were treated as though they were born there, like Rahab. Right? She was welcomed in. That wasn't the norm, though. But eventually, God's plan was that it would go global. So Jesus comes, and he's the, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Remember in John 12, when the disciples are confused, a Greek wants to follow Jesus. They're Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. I thought this was kind of like a Jewish thing. A Greek wants to follow him? I don't know. What do we do? They go and ask Jesus. Can this happen? And that's when Jesus says, if I be lifted up on the cross, I'll draw all men to myself. Not every individual, but all kinds of men. It's no longer just a Jewish thing. He's the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, First John 2, 2 says. And in the end, there'll be a representation of every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5, verse 9. John sees this heavenly scene. Angels praising Jesus, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its, open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That fourfold description, tribe, language, people, nation, helps us understand why Psalm 67 and other psalms talked about peoples, plural. Just this week, we were reading Psalm 67 as a family, and my 12-year-old, a bit of a grammar Nazi, noticed that peoples, peoples already plural. Peoples is in the Bible? Why, Why does it say peoples? She said that. She said, peoples already plural. What are peoples? Well, they're people groups. It's not a mistake. King James Bible doesn't have peoples plural. There's a shortcoming with uh, the old King Jimmy. You need peoples to see that God has a plan for his gospel going forth, not just around the world and not just to as many people as possible, but he has a strategic plan of it going to people groups, cultures and tribes and languages. 
Why? Why does he have that as his plan? Why not just as many people as possible, whether here or there? Well, one answer is, I don't know. I mean, just sometimes God does stuff and he doesn't always tell us why. And I don't know. It's in the Bible. It's all over the Bible that he has this plan. I mean, Jesus said the gospel will be preached in the whole world and then the end will come. So, we don't know why he decided to have a representation of every tribe and language and people and nation in heaven, except maybe that our God loves diversity, our God's a global God, it glorifies him that there's no corner, no pocket, no time period where, no, where, where he isn't known, where he isn't glorified. So back to Psalm 67, that means that God has a plan for the nations, the earth, the peoples. And he blesses his people, he blesses you, he blesses me, so that the nations would know, the way nations would see. And he has blessed us greatly. I mean, just, just think about how he's blessed us. I know... I know you can give a, a quick list of things that aren't going so well right now. I, I could do that too. I could, I could pull out a pretty decent complaint list, I think. But it's so small compared to his blessings. Oh, I know I camp out on this small complaint list much more than I do this enormous blessing list. That's why we're told in Scripture to to ponder his blessings, to meditate on all that he's done. I mean, we couldn't really, in all of life, think about, let alone thank him for and praise him for, everything he's done just for us. So many millions of things that we don't even know, that we don't even realize, or maybe that science will find out next year. He's done marvelous things. And he's done not just physical things, not just physical provision, but spiritual things. He's worked in the church, and he's worked at your work, and he's worked in your home and among your family. He's given us in the West resources that are just unthinkable. I mean, the resources of the web and Bibles and books the accessibility and the money that we have. And again, Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us is a scary thing to pray because it means he's given us much. We better use it. We better use it so that he is known. That's the second thing in your notes. And we'll move more quickly through these other things. They're listed almost in bullet point fashion throughout the psalm. The second thing is God has a plan to be known. That your way may be known on the earth, verse 2 says. He is known in the earth, and yet he's not known. Right? He's there, and he's not silent. Psalm 19 is true. Creation is pouring forth information that he's there, that he's good, that he's glorious, that he cares, that he's powerful, but we suppress it. And even what is known isn't 
recognized apart from his grace and his working. And, and his grace and his working doesn't happen unless we hear. We have to hear. Romans 10 talks about this, right? They can't be saved unless they hear. And how will they hear unless someone goes and proclaims it to them? And how will someone proclaim it to them unless they're sent? We have to go. We have to send. We have to give in order to send. But that's his plan. That was his plan at the end of Isaiah. He told us of a time to come when he will gather all nations and tongues, which he's doing now. And they will come and they will see my glory and I will set a sign among them. I think that means Jesus, Messiah. I'll send survivors to the nations, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the nations. A promise, a prophecy of the great commission to come that Jesus gave us at the end of every gospel account. There are those who haven't heard of his fame. They haven't truly, savingly seen his glory. They have to know. And one day, there'll be global awareness. Habakkuk 2.14 tells us one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Like right now, the waters cover the sea. Waters cover the sea 100%. Waters are the sea. Sea is water, right? Yeah, that's how it's going to be with God's glory someday. God has a plan to be known. The third thing in your notes is that God has a plan to save. Not just be known, but to save. That your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Now, Psalm 67 is working with a wide lens here, right? It's talking about him being known. It's talking about his saving power being experienced. It's telling us the end, the goal, which is praise. But it doesn't tell us how. It doesn't show us exactly what God's saving power looks like. In the Old Testament, it was just a promise and a foreshadow. In Jesus, we have the real thing. He's the saving power of God revealed. Oh, it was cloaked in weakness. It didn't look powerful. But at the cross, while he was being spit upon and mocked, crucified, while he was tormented and forsaken by his father, He was fixing sin. He was defeating Satan and all his minions. He was removing sin, the guilt of sin, the power of sin. He was making a way for rebels like me and you to be free from our rebellion, free from the penalty of our rebellion and be reconciled to our maker. Something cosmic. And glorious was happening when Jesus was upon the cross. And God raised him the third day so we would know it worked. He saves. God has a plan to save. And all along, God's people have known that. They've been trusting it ever since that first promise in Genesis 3.15. That one day, there'll be one born of a woman who crushes the head of the serpent. But in the New Testament, we see how God is both just and the justifier of those who believe. 
He's righteous and he's the forgiver. And it's in that sense that Psalm 67 stands on the shoulders of that Arianic blessing of number 6 and looks way beyond. In number 6, the prayer was that God's people, this little group, this nation, would be blessed. And that they'd be protected. And there'd be peace. Psalm 67 thinks of that kind of blessing in global terms which were never fully realized until the coming of Jesus, when he began to draw all men unto himself, when he began to bring peace and to reconcile this and that together, to reconcile all things together in him, to shine the glory of God on the face of Christ into our hearts which I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I know it's wonderful and glorious in saving and unparalleled in his plan that we would have that. And yet, still today, there are people who don't have it, that don't know it, they don't believe it, and they're not saved by it. In fact, there are 6,000 people groups. People groups. There are only 16,000 total people groups. So we're a little more than halfway there in penetrating people groups for Jesus. An unreached people group is a a group which doesn't yet have scripture in their own language, doesn't yet have self-leadership, right? So led by outsiders, if outsiders are even there, missionaries are there. It's not self-propagating. When it becomes a reached people group, they have scripture, they have leadership, and they're doing mission themselves. You can go to joshuaproject.net to read more about people groups and unreached people groups and, and, and all that. Uh, this is why we are funding and sending, sacrificing, and some are even leaving to go to North Africa because there are people groups, plural, there on the ground that haven't yet heard. They're of this unreached category. And the Apostle Paul, well, he got the mission. He understood the strategic plan of God to get not just many people, but also peoples, people groups in. And so Romans fifteen twenty, Paul said, I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named. Yes, the church is to pitch its tent in its own backyard. It's to live Christ out in the world. It's, for some, the mission to stay and send and stay and say to their neighbors and friends and those around them that Christ is a saving, glorious God. But it also needs to get on the other side of the world where right now the Bible is not and where people who believe it and will testify of it are not. But the goal is the fourth thing here in your notes, that God has a plan to get praise and to give joy. Verse 3 says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And verse 3 and verse 5 are the same. And both of them repeat the same theme twice. So that means four times it says, let the peoples praise you, O God. An exclamation of deep longing. 
Not just that God would be known. Not just that some would recognize. Not just even that some would be saved. But that God would be praised. That's the goal. He's great and he's greatly to be praised. So we say we're spreading God's glory broader and deeper which means we want God's glory further recognized in our homes, in our lives, in this corner, in that corner of my life. But I want his glory to spread to new pockets, new cities, where he is not yet named. Not just so that we win, so that we conquer, or something like that, so we show them we're right. It's so that they're forgiven, and so that God gets praise. It's good and it's right and it's loving for him to get his praise. And so, that praise is not just the end of the road, it's also the means by which we get there. In other words, we proclaim in a praise-like way. You see that in this psalm? You see it in so many other psalms. Read Psalm 96 today. Read Psalm 145 today and see how praise and proclamation are so mingled so that our proclamation wouldn't just be, I have some information to tell you. I'm a Christian. Jesus sent me. I have to give you this information. That's not the mission. The mission is to go praise this to the nations, to praise him to the nations. That's what we buy into. That's what hopefully they're buying into when they come to believe. So John Piper begins his missions book, Let the Nations Be Glad, with these almost now famous words. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. He reasons like this, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. But worship is also the fuel of missions. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad if they cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad. I will exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. Therefore, I'd say there's a hypocrisy about thinking we're passionate for worship and we're not passionate to see that worship Go to new places. God's plan is to get praise and also to give joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. But the psalm also contains a warning. The fifth thing is that God has a plan to judge. Verse 4 says, you judge the peoples with equity. You guide the nations upon the earth. Psalm 67 warns there will be a final reckoning. The one who sustains all things, the one who guides all things, 
Read 65 and 66 to see that unpacked. That same one, one day will bring all to account. So that either our sins are paid for by Christ upon the cross, we've received that gift through faith, or we will pay for them ourselves. One day there'll be a final reckoning. Philippians 2 says that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a reckoning. Psalm 67 has promised that there will be a global reckoning. There's either a bowing in submission that leads to judgment, or there's a bowing in faith and joy and worship before before it's too late. But it's also a plan which isn't done. Verses 5 through 7, I think, tell us that. They repeat the same themes. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. God's blessed the earth. God shall bless us. He'll bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Repeating the same themes over and over here reminds us, I think, that we will have this as our song, our message, and our mission until Jesus returns. It reminds us that it's not done yet. We're still saying the same thing. And we will until Jesus returns. We've been saying, we will say, by God's grace, that he's blessed us in order to be a blessing. He's blessed us, he is blessing, and he will bless us. Why? So that the ends of the earth would fear him. So do you? Do you fear him? And in faith, trust your soul to him. God blesses far greater than you've probably heard. If you're not a Christian, you think you've heard the Christian message, you probably think it goes something like, you straighten up for God, do what Jesus says, and things go well for you. That's not the Christian message at all, though. God has blessings which are according to his grace. And God has blessings which aren't always material. That's why not every Christian is rich. In fact, many aren't and many suffer. But he promises to bless us with nothing less than the light of his face, his very countenance. So Christian, what are you praying for? Yes, pray for God's blessings, but inject that word with all the richness that Psalm 67 offers you. If you dare, pray for God's blessings. And he may just give them to you. He may just give you the gracious countenance, his presence in glory that leads you to sacrifice, to see his name spread among the nations. Pray for God's blessing, not so much the temporal, the just personal, the selfish, the comfortable, but pray for the eternal, the global, and the glorious. 
Pray for God's blessings that his way would be known on the earth. It will be known on the earth. It is spreading. And proof of that are these baptisms we get to watch today.